Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is an entirely free show. Everything's free. All episodes, hundreds of episodes, all available for free. The app is free. Everything's free. It's a listener-supported program is what I'm saying. So this holiday season, if you would like to show some love to your favorite literary podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you very much. Okay. You are not alone. Right, 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 you have right, found right, 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 other right. people. We'll you and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It looks like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Bradley Just one person at just one time. Yes. Hey, everybody. How's it going? <laughs> right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. I am poised before a microphone. I'm hunched over it. I'm in the ready position. It's good to be with you. Ivy Pakoda is my guest. She has a new book out on Echo Press, a fine press uh, Echo is. And her book is called Wonder Valley, just published from Echo. Wonder Valley, Ivy Pakoda. I must say... And I feel a little bit sheepish in admitting this, that uh, I've known of uh, Ivy Pakoda uh, via the internet and uh, literary circles for years. I always thought her last name was pr uh, pronounced Pachoda. And I also thought she was like Latina, <laughs> none of which is true. I had it all wrong. She corrected me on uh, all of the above. You're going to hear that conversation coming up in just a minute. Ivy Pakoda, her new novel is called Wonder Valley. So I've been hearing from people. I, uh, when I asked people on Twitter to ask me, like, I was like, do you guys have any questions? John, the unworthy. That's what he goes by. He says, uh, so not drinking it's hell, right? Because as some of you know, I, I stopped like drinking daily. I went through this whole monologue about it. Cause I was one of these people who would have like a couple of glasses of wine every night to sort of unwind. And then it sort of, it started to bother me. And I was like, I don't want to have to like, have this thing every night. It's like Dumbo's feather. I can fly without the feather. I don't need this. Why am I doing this? Who told me I needed to do this? You know? So I stopped and th here's the truth. It was easy. I'm lucky that way. It was not hard for me to stop doing the uh, daily routine. 
and uh, I just replace it. Like instead of doing that, I just have, I meditate at night. As long as I sit down and like chill out, that's basically the function that it was performing. But where it gets difficult is socializing. And so, yeah, like a glass or two of wine on Thanksgiving, no big deal. Like my wife and I went out on a date last night. I'm not going to not have a glass of wine at dinner with her. And I feel fine about it. I think the thing that was bothering me was just like the daily ritual of like pain killing. And uh, I'm too old to get fucked up. Like I can't handle hangovers. So I have a sort of built-in discipline. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to have a headache and the flu just because I wanted to have, you know, a good time or whatever. So that's where things are on that, John the Unworthy. I hope that's acceptable. Uh, Malice Walker, her handle is at HumbleCore. She says, who is your best smelling guest? I would have to say Ivy Pakoda. She smelled terrific. She walked in and it was like, a, like you know, a burst of like lilac breeze. <laughs> I don't even know how to, I have the worst sense of smell, so it's not even really an issue for me. I will tell you this. Nobody has ever come over who smelled terrible to the best of my knowledge. But I would not be the right person to ask. I can smell almost nothing. Except for Ivy Pakoda, who smells like a field of wildflowers. William Schneider at WFSCH says, you should wear a helmet when you ride your bike. If I had a nickel for every time, I should have never brought this up. Everybody telling me that I need to you know, wear a helmet when I ride my bike. It's an outrage. I'm an adult. I'm working my way there. It's going to mess up my hair. I have a vanity thing. The helmets look stupid. Do I really need one? I didn't have one when I was a kid. I survived. I was riding around cars. Like if it's your time, it's your time. Am I allowed to be chill about this? I'm so uptight about so many things. I'm not uptight about this. Let me have this one thing. Let me just be Zen about it. Am I being ridiculous? I guess I have a responsibility to my family. So what else? I don't know if there's anything else. I had a good Thanksgiving. It's now, uh, like, are we into December yet? What day does this go live? Not quite. Couple days. We'll be into December. 2017 will be over. The years, they slide by. I'm trying to think. I feel like I had something else to say. Let me check Twitter again. Somebody asking me questions. I think I'm good. <laughs> I got nothing. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. But I do have Ivy Picota, who lives right here in town, and I had a great time meeting her. Great conversation. Excited to share it with you. She is a terrific writer, and she smells like spring rain. It's like a, uh, it's like there's a, some cinnamon, there's a, like an essence of uh, lavender and night-blooming jasmine when she walks into the room. It's incredible. Here she is, folks. This is Ivy Picota, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Wonder Valley. It is a Polish name from the Ural Mountains, so it's a hybrid Czech-Polish name. Okay. And uh, it's Jewish and or Jewish origin, and it means a long march or sort of a pogrom. So it's a cheerful name. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I thought that there was something like almost like Latin about it or, you know. People think it's everything from Asian to Italian. Okay. It's like a pachod is a long march. All right. Yeah. So your ancestors are from the Ural Mountains, Ural Mountains. My grandfather is from uh, the, from, you know, Jewish ghetto in Warsaw, so... Did he get out? I guess yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> I guess he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, wow. And so uh, have you been back over there? You know, um, I lived in Europe for seven years, and I never went to Poland. And I'm Why did you live in Europe? Um, I was a professional squash player, and I moved to Amsterdam to play squash. Wait a minute. Yeah. You were a professional squash player? Yeah. That's a thing? Yeah. I, yeah. And I don't mean to insult you, no, but no, I, that's I, okay. I've Please, never heard it. <laughs> yeah. Professional squash. I'm not used to being insulted. I'm used to that question. It happens all, <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time. Uh, yes, there is, it's like, think of like the professional tennis tour, like shrunk down to very, very Is small. there money in this? Can you make money? I made ends meet. You know, I wasn't like putting a down payment on an apartment. Um, at the top level, you can definitely make money. If you come from a country that really supports you and you get your expenses paid and your training stuff paid, um, you do well. Um, the reason I lived in Europe was that there was a league system and um, you would play like as a gun for hire for various clubs. So I played for a club in Amsterdam, well, a club in Holland at one point in Amsterdam and in Germany and in Belgium and at one point in, in Czech Republic. And uh, so you get money per week to play on those teams. So you lived all over Europe. I only lived in Amsterdam. I lived in Amsterdam and The Hague. Okay. Um, Den Haag. And, uh, but you, you speak can, Dutch? I do speak Dutch, yeah. Oh, I've heard it's an easier language to learn. Is it true? I think it's relatively easy to learn. The rules are straightforward, and they're, they never break them. Okay. And they really, it's really easy to spell. And uh, They're an orderly people. They're an orderly people. I mean, it's a bizarre language, but once you, you know, the verb always comes at the end. So you're listening to this whole sentence, and you've got, like, the subject, the noun, I mean, the subject, the object, the ad- adverb, the place. You're like, but what happened? <laughs> like, what did all these things do to each other? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you know, to my ear, it's like there's not a, there's not a lot of music to it. The no. way the way that like French and Spanish and Italian. Like, yes, you know, but you are definitely correct. I wonder what English. I bet English has got to sound terrible to people who don't understand it. I think it does. Yeah. Um, English and Dutch actually sound pretty similar to me. I mean, Dutch sounds harsher, more Germanic, but. Um, Dutch people tend to speak English with American accents and not English accents because the, this tonal or whatever it is, is similar. So, okay. So you yeah. live in, in Amsterdam for seven years. You speak fluent Dutch. You're playing competitive squash. <laughs> yeah. You're a great athlete. 
I was a really good athlete. Um, I took some breaks from playing squash because, um, to be honest, living in Amsterdam and being a professional athlete doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Were you smoking a, pot? I mean, sure. But, you know, you kind of get over it when you're there because yeah. the Dutch are like, oh, God, I went on vacation to California and everyone was smoking pot. <laughs> okay. You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're so over it. They're so over it. Um, it's sort of the... They're, to smoke a lot of pot in Holland is to like, be kind of dirty, you know? They'll smoke, like, after dinner, like, a fine hash, you know, like having a cognac or whatever, or a nice day on the beach. But it's not like... You always see, like, American tourists, like, super stoned, like, out in a pedal boat in the canals, just, like, spinning in circles. And, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my friends would visit. I'm like, oh, no, I'm having a guest. All they're going to do is smoke pot and sit on the couch, and this is going to suck big time. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's too yeah. much. It's but too much. It's a beautiful city, Amsterdam. It is beautiful. It's just so charming. Yeah, it's great. And it's a great place to... Um, I love it because it's quite small and you get to know it really well quite quickly and you really feel like familiar um after a short amount of time and right. you ride your bike everywhere i was gonna say you ride a bike around the yeah. canals yeah everyone's everyone's kind of beautiful there too they are um it's you know it's changed a lot recently no people are still attractive um, yeah. people have gotten increasingly <laughs> ugly it's horrible but, yeah. um you know it's more um it's gotten a little more affluent a lot of that sort of artsy squatter vibe and you know, has gone away and it's pretty, um, it's gentrifying. I what, guess. What, like the artsy squatter vibe is getting crushed everywhere. I know. I know. It's, it's not a good time to be an artsy squatter. Oh, be, yeah. We <laughs> need like more artsy squatter vibe. I feel like Los Angeles, uh, is like clinging to some vestiges of it just because of its like landmass. Yeah. There's definitely more room here. Um, but you know, I lived in the arts district for a couple of years and not that that was, you know, in my experience, any that artsy squattery but there was still some you know communal art spaces oh, like the brewery like that the bre lincoln that, brewery yeah. yeah they're like people like they're like actual like uh, working artists living in this giant like industrial place together that's how i got my apartment is like these people couldn't i guess it was in foreclosure because they hadn't paid their mortgage in two years and then they decamped to the lincoln brewery <laughs> <laughs> good place to decamp to. I know. You're going to start over. I know. So where are you from originally? I'm from Brooklyn. You're from, like you were born and raised in Brooklyn. Yes. Yeah, I know. It's like, I'm in an unusual position of being a novelist from Brooklyn. What part of Brooklyn? <laughs> I'm from Cobble Hill. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you grew up born and raised in Cobble mm -hmm. Hill. Cobble yeah. Hill's like very uh, posh now. It all of Brooklyn is. sort of is. Yeah, I know. Except, yeah, all of Brooklyn, except for maybe um, a few neighborhoods. Yeah, I can't, I'm trying. I'm struggling to think of the, the example. So yeah, all of Brooklyn. Okay, so you were raised in Cobble. What was Cobble Hill like when you were growing up? Well, if you've read Fortress of Solitude by Jonathan Lethem, it was exactly like that. That was it. Yeah, that's exactly where I grew up. Is where he was writing about. Um, did, did you know him? Yeah, I didn't then. I've met him since. Oh, then. okay. But um, you guys like weren't like. No, we're about it. We're a little too different he's a little bit older than i am to the point where we wouldn't have intersected but gotcha. um it was great growing up there it was really sort of um it was just the it was beautiful and kind of empty and everyone who lived there felt like they're you know pioneering spirit of being in brooklyn and you know people it was so strange people say you live why do you live in brooklyn and cabs wouldn't go there um really? ever. oh god i mean yeah to get a cab to go it was uh, this constant issue in my childhood was we'd i'd be out in the city with my parents for they both worked in manhattan and sometimes we'd take a cab home and they said well, i'm not taking you to brooklyn and my dad would like threaten the cab driver so 
Or sometimes you'd get in the cab and you wouldn't tell them where you were going until you were moving. And then, <laughs> then they'd say, no, Brooklyn. And I just remember my dad like nearly coming to blows with cab drivers several times. As a What did your parents do? Um, my dad is a publisher and my mom is a magazine editor. Oh, well, shit. I know. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No, it doesn't. Um, though they were a little wary that I wanted to be a novelist, you know, because they, they, people are always, you know, oh, it must have been so much easier for you. I said, well, my parents were, you know, a cautionary tale to, you know, they gave me some advice like this is not a easy business. I was going to say, so what, like what, what, where publisher and where magazine editor? So my mother, um, has been at a lot of different places. She was at the nation for nearly 20 years as the book editor. Not only was she a magazine editor, she was the book editor. Wow. So, um, and since and then she was at the New York post and the daily news and, um, more recently at house and garden and the magazine antiques. Okay. Um, and my dad did sort of big publishing when I was a growing up. Um, he was at Prentice hall and random house and Simon and Schuster. And then he made a transition into, um, university presses and um wound up running the university of michigan press for 12 years okay did he publish any authors that you know we would know like growing up was like john updike like in your kitchen or something well i mean they had a lot of i mean well philip roth (laughs) but um, was he i'm not sure in our kitchen but they were really good really good friend of my family i mean and uh tom dish people you know I don't know if people still read Tom Dish. But yeah, there are authors around, though. My parents weren't, um, I can't, how do I, they weren't really into the social aspect of the literary world. I Neither mean, am the, I. Yeah. Except, except for this. Yeah, this is pretty social, though. But this is like, this is it. This, <laughs> yeah. is, this is really like 90% of my social life is this. <laughs> they, yeah, they hated going to like publishing dinners and like stuff. Yeah, so they had friends who happened to be their friends and also wrote, but they didn't sort of cultivate, you know, a big network of famous writers. You right. know, I have, fr- I have friends whose parents were also in publishing and then you would see like, oh, you know, Don DeLillo is over and Norman Mailer and that was pretty, you know, exciting for them. But my parents weren't like that or still aren't like that. Um, but you had exposure to the business from the oh, get-go. Yeah. And so you have to learn by osmosis just by being around it, having parents who are like talking about it at the dinner table. Do you have siblings? No. Oh, God. So you're an only child. Yeah. What an education. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, my parents and my mother reads, a, both of them read a lot, but, you know, they sort of, they shied away from the, like, the the showy aspect of publishing. I mean, they weren't, like, eating lunch at the Odeon and hanging out with, like, <laughs> you know, Sunny Maida and stuff like that. Whereas, yeah. you know, I was aware of that world um, because I can talk about it, but, you know, they were definitely not in that side of it, um, yeah. although that's what they did. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, when you work at the Nation magazine as the as the book editor, you're not exactly going to be, um, you know, running around town, high flying, yeah, chilling with Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> Are you uh, like it's a, your parents political? Like, was it po- yes. was politics in the house as a kid? That is, yeah. My dad was um, a um, uh, he was an organizer um, in the '60s. He worked for um, ERAP. What's and, that? Um, the oh gosh, I'm going to get the acronym wrong. It was um, it was one it was one of the you know during. I wish I hadn't brought this up because I'm not. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was um, what you know during it was um a 
organization that, that popped up around the time of SDS and he like organized protests and demonstrations and I'm really not going to do it any justice. And, you know, my mom worked at the nation and they were really into, um, you know, my dad for all, they were pretty, um, radical. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So what did you have like a backlash where you're like less radical? No, um, not, not at all. In fact, my father encouraged me to organize an anti-war movement in 1991 against like the um, first Gulf insurrection. You know, he was like, you need to organize a walkout from school and all this stuff. And so he encouraged that, um, though I didn't stick with it. You know, I think they probably wish it's a lot was... of work. It's organizing. a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> You're like that. I'm in high school. I know. I'm missing a math test today. We're like <laughs> marching again. So it's interesting. Cause you know, like I, I was raised by more conservative traditional parents, like from the South who don't have like a radical bone in their body. And so like, I was, I think maybe rebelling against that. You know, I feel like a lot of times kids will rebel against whatever their parents are presenting. And the, the yang to that yin tends to be like, my parents were like total hippies and like into crystals. And so like, I am less that way, but it sounds like your parents were radical and left of center, but you know, working solid day jobs and uh, kind of sophisticated urbane New, so there wasn't maybe as much to rebel against? Or? No, I mean, I was perfectly happy. I had a great life growing up. You know, I used New York like it was a playground. They sort of, they're pretty lenient about what I was allowed to do and how late I was allowed to stay out. They, there wasn't a lot of room to rebel. I mean, I tried, you know, I tried to stay out till, you know, 3 a.m., not 1 a.m. or whatever. But they were, um, there wasn't, you know, I think my form of rebellion was running off to Amsterdam for seven years and playing squash. Playing squash. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think as much as my dad was really into, my mom was really into me playing squash growing up, but she really didn't like the amount of time I had to spend in country clubs. And so that was for her not you know, her favorite thing to have to do on a weekend. How did you get into squash? How does one become a, what do you, are you called a squasher? What is it? Yeah. I mean, squash player, squasher. It's um, Well, um, these family friends of ours um, got divorced and the father came to live. uh, Is it Noah Baumbach? No, uh, but I know really. (laughs) (laughs) It's similar to that that movie Squid and the Whale. It's a little hard for me. It's like yeah, Squid and the Whale. This isn't funny. That's like that's my youth. (laughs) I mean, it's like filmed around the corner from my house. That that looks like my house. Okay. Um, um, No, actually, it was a friend of our family. The mom was in publishing, oddly, and still is, I guess. And so um, the father, the judge, he was a judge, a federal judge. He came and lived at our house and um, during this divorce, and he was a member of this squash club in Brooklyn Heights called the Heights Casino, and he wanted someone to play squash with. The Heights Casino? I know. Okay. I mean, a casino, you know, I should know this because I grew up in the place, but a casino is some kind of it's a word for a racket club. Um, and there's one in Martha's Vineyard. There's something, or the Nantucket Casino. One of those islands has one. Okay. Um, so he faked, it's like this, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, though I can't imagine too many members of the Heights Casino. Or, you would be surprised. <laughs> I know. Um, I'm huge in Nantucket. <laughs> no, it's in Brooklyn. Oh, in Brooklyn. <laughs> Heights okay. Casino. Um, <laughs> um, so it's sort of, um, it was sort of, at least the way I saw it, like a, urban copy of a snooty uh, Greenwich country club and had a couple tennis courts, a couple squash courts. And so the, the, the father of this family who are getting divorced and living with us for reasons I'm never, ever going to figure out. I was going to say, your parents are nice people. Yeah. They weren't like the, our best friends either. You know, it was very strange. (laughs) Just took this guy in. Yeah. We took him in. Um, 
he faked all these letters of introduction to the club to get my family in. And um, so my dad could play squash with him. And I, to this day, cannot recall one instance of this man playing squash at the club. I've never seen him there. Ever. But yeah, never. But he got you. He, he got us in. He made you a pro. He made me a pro. Yeah, I have a lot. Yeah, I owe it all to Judge Sifton. Okay, so. <laughs> Crazy story. Judge, Judge Sifton. 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 Uh, so yeah. you uh, start to play squash mm-hmm. as a child. How old are you? Like 12? Um, no, I was, I had my first lesson on my uh, eighth birthday. Okay, so you does the light go on immediately for you? You're like, you know what? This is going to be my future. I'm going to play this sport all the way to Europe. I mean, not exactly like that, but I realized I was good really quickly. You know, what is it? You have good hand, uh, hand coordination. Yeah, I have good hand-eye coordination. You're quick, fast, cat-like uh, reflexes. E- cat, yes, all these things. <laughs> uh, it was fun. You know, it's cre- it's a creative sport, and I had a lot of fun. And I was a flashy player. And, you know, I entered my first tournament at ten, and I did okay. And the next year at eleven, I was ranked number one in the twelve and under girls U.S. division. So, so you're competitive. Yeah, I was competitive. Um, I had a lot of struggles competitively too, because you know, if someone, some girls can be tricky on court. They can sort of be mean to you, and then you get nervous. And you know, she's crying. Should I still be there? Because yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. <laughs> she could beat her. Yeah. <laughs> Crush her. She's yeah, down. Yeah. She's a wounded animal. She's complaining. <laughs> so yeah, I was good at that. And I, uh, I spent so much time doing it and playing on the U.S. junior national team and playing tournaments in Europe as a... Is it an Olympic sport? No, squash is not an Olympic sport. You could have been an Olympian. Uh, yes. If it had been an Olympic sport, I would definitely have gone to the Olympics. Really? Yeah. You were, you I mean, I was, the, I was on the women's U.S. national team for seven years. Were you the best? No, I was never the best in the country. I was the best. Um, I was the third best. I was ranked third several years in a row. Um, and I was the best collegiate player. How, how many points are there in a squash game? Like when you get to what? I've never played squash in my life. Well, they switched the scoring. Um, currently, there are 11 points and you play a best of five match. Okay. And you it's you don't have to be serving to win a point. So it's called point or rally scoring. Okay. So you and I go out onto a squash court right now. Mm-hmm. How quickly do you dispatch me? Very quickly. Like less than 20 minutes, I'm done. Oh, um, it, for a full match, it would be more like 15. Wow. Yeah. You're a killer. Well, it's... Um... <laughs> I mean, if I was nice to you, maybe we could play yeah. for longer. Let the, let the poor old man get a point. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so I spent so much time playing and, you know, competing that when I got to graduated from college, it just seemed a waste to throw that all away. And the, you know, the professional squash tour is fun. I mean, especially if you're not at the very top and have to worry about training super duper hard, you can kind of see the world. And It's so niche yeah, it is quite a. So it's got to be like, but I mean, that, that, the, the point that I'm driving at is that there's got to be like a sense of camaraderie because how many people are doing this? Not that many. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely definitely the case. You travel the world knowing the same. I mean, maybe there's 300 women who are ranked, but you know, you see the same group that you you know in your set of whatever. If you're ranked 30 to 60 or one to 32, you're sort of moving in the same circle. So you know everybody. So what what, uh, what country in the world is squash the closest to being like a mainstream, like cool sport? Like, is it China? Is it huge? Or um, Egypt and Malaysia and England, anywhere that was Commonwealth. Okay. Egypt is, um, well, Egypt is like inc- so incredibly dominant that it's laughable. Like, you know, you go to the British Junior Open and there's, you know, 
four boys' divisions, 19, 17, 15, 13, and same for girls. That's eight divisions. And they could have the semifinalists in every division. Wow. So, yeah, it's obscene. I had no idea. Yeah. So they're really good. And people, you know, in Malaysia, too, they have a woman named Nicole David who was um, world champion for a long sounds, time. It sounds Malaysian, Nicole yeah. David. Yeah, exactly. Very Malaysian. <laughs> it's the first you thing I guess. thought. It's the first thing I thought when I heard that name. I know. Me, too. <laughs> um, and her sister, I think her sister's name is Cheryl Ann. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> sound like they're from Iowa. I know. And But she's so famous, she can't walk down the street. In Malaysia. In Malaysia. Wow. Yeah. All right. So are you, were you famous at any point? I mean, if I went to a squash club, people would say, are you the one who writes the articles for Squash Magazine? I, I've seen your picture with the cowboy hat on. Where's your cowboy hat? Because I wrote for Squash Magazine and someone took a picture of me for my, you know, what's it called? Your byline or your author, author photo. photo. And I was wearing a cowboy hat. So people would say, you know, where's your cowboy hat, Ivy? I heard that all the time. Ivy and I are both wearing cowboy hats right <laughs> exactly. now. Exactly. For those of you listening. She insisted <laughs> yeah. that I wear one. <laughs> Um, so let's go backwards. You're in, uh, Brooklyn, you're playing competitive squash. Uh, you're living sort of like the Bombakian childhood. I uh, believe he even went to my high school, but I'm not sure. What high school did you go to? St. Anne's. You went to so St. Anne's. And I feel like St. Anne's is like a hive of, um, like media success stories and privilege. Isn't that like the Lena Dunham high school? Yeah, I, it, I love to say that we're a hive of media success stories. But isn't it though? It's like it's like it's like a factory producing. It's true. I mean, it's even the truth. more so now. I mean, yeah. when I was there, it was a little different, you know. Because um, Emma Straub went there. I talked to her, did. and like I've talked to like two or three authors who went to St. Anne's. Who else? I you know I, I've done five hundred of these. I okay. can't even remember. I mean, <laughs> lucky I can remember Emma. But I mean, I just I, I hear of St. Anne's repeatedly. It's in the yeah. press. Like the fact that I know it. I'm from Milwaukee. Why do I know about St. Anne's? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it was an amazing school. I mean, like everything, it's changing as the world gets more expensive and ritzier. Well, I'm, and, and also like, and not, not to interrupt you, but you were talking about how Amsterdam's losing its squattery art, art, artist vibe. Yeah. I feel like this is like what's like, as more and more people flock to, to urban centers, it's driving the cost of living up. Is that what's happening? I, I guess. I mean, you know, it's something that I actually write about a lot, too, is uh, that... Um, Wait, you're a writer? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were just a squash player. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah just... I, that's fine, too. <laughs> um, it's... I, I wonder... Yes, definitely. I think you're... It's true. The grunginess is disappearing from the world. It's getting scrubbed clean. But we're also nostalgic for that. I mean, I'm so guilty of that. You know, my husband is always complaining that I'm bemoaning, you know, it was so much better in New York when you could buy Coke on the street. And, you know, you could, you when you got like mugged on the subway at a regular basis and like there was graffiti everywhere. He's like, he's like, you're just being contrarian and difficult. And I have to examine why I feel that way because that's definitely the case. What's that? You, you are nostalgic for that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I miss that. I mean, I, I, I like it that it's cleaner. You know, I, I like it that my mom's property values have gone up. I, I was going to say your parents killed it on real estate. They, they, they bought their house in 1979. For a song. For a song. And they definitely killed it in real estate. Good for them. I know. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of... Yeah, so St. Anne's, I mean, when I first started there, they had a smoking lounge in the school, so... My high school had a smoking lounge really? for kids, yeah. But I was like, I went to high school in Indiana. But that's like the they first... They still have a smoking lounge. They do. <laughs> Get free menthols every morning when you <laughs> show up. That's pretty good. Those are the healthy ones, right? Yeah. It's... No, I think so. They taste like mint. They taste like mint. It's like, it's like flossing or whatever. <laughs> 
I mean, our school, you know, they made these rules when I was there. Well, there's no more smoking lounge and you can't smoke in front of the school. You can smoke on the steps of this, this brownstone across the street. And then those people got kind of upset. That, you, know. yeah, you, you weren't smoking, though. You were playing squash. No, I was playing squash. I mean, I wasn't the healthiest. You know, I, I misbehaved. You did. Okay, good. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I was out late a lot as a kid. And your parents were cool with that. I mean, probably not like in love with the idea, but yeah. Like no curfew. Not really. It was just like, tell us where you're going to be and don't die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, they knew that I would, they, I would tell my dad that I was going drinking at this bar. I'm going to like, going to go down to, um, what was it called? I'm going to go down to the Brooklyn Inn or Pete's waterfront. And they knew. Yeah. But you know, oh, they didn't is, make a thing about it though. And I didn't make a thing about it either. Again, this is sort of one of these like privileged New York, Brooklyn conversations that I hate myself for engaging in. But you know, I didn't get super drunk. I'd have like two or three beers and like go home and go to bed. I thought you were going to be like, I'd have a, you know, I'd have a couple glasses of rosé. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that was before I was into rosé. I would drink like bass ale. Bass, that's good though. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, it's a good solid ale. I know. I can't imagine drinking a bass ale now. It's so not my style. I can't drink beer. I, 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 I don't enjoy drinking beer. And I Did feel, you? Yeah. I mean, Me back, too. When I was in high school, we drank Bush Light Draft and like Coors Light and in the smoking lounge. Yeah, I mean Indiana style. <laughs> yeah, until like a John Cougar concert. You think I'm kidding too? I, mean, I actually don't think you're yeah. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you're like I see the look in your eye and I believe you. I I don't know what happened. I drank beer and then I got to college and didn't want to drink beer anymore. Oh really? What then? What did you switch oh, to? I drank some beer, um, but I drank like vodka cranberry. Okay, like that's a the true other... girl. I got it. Where'd you go to school? I went to Harvard. Oh, you oh my God. <laughs> this conversation's is... going nowhere. <laughs> straight to the top. Oh, yeah. Uh, so playing squash, went to Harvard. What did you study at Harvard? This literature? also kills the con- classical Greek. <laughs> classical Greek. You're a well-educated woman. How was Harvard? Did you enjoy it? Um, not really. I mean, not as much as people around me did. I liked... I liked aspects of it you know i liked it was a little anonymous for me and i got sort of lost because i figured i thought i knew everything when i got there because you know i was drinking past ale and bars you know <laughs> right <laughs> staying out till two in the morning so and then many I went, lives i've lived know? so many lives people <laughs> and then i got to this for all intents and purposes small town compared to new york and was in college and i didn't really know how to refocus my energy as a college student um and I didn't really enjoy studying classical Greek, but Harvard makes it incredibly difficult to switch um, uh, your field of concentration. Why? I don't know. Because, I mean, Jesus, you're 18 years old. You should be allowed to change your mind. I know. They make you choose freshman year, the end of freshman year. Why did you choose classical Greek? Because I was good at it. I'd started it in high school. What, is it, what does that mean? You, sp- you speak Greek? No, I can read ancient Greek. I, I could read, read ancient it. Greek. Let's put, let, I could read ancient <laughs> Greek. I cannot anymore. Yeah. Um, I was good at classics in high school. That's what I did. I loved it. I was such a classics nerd. And then I got to college and it wasn't creative. It was just translating in St. Anne's because it was a groovy, weird school. We'd go see like plays where like people in the West Village were, or East Village were performing you know, the Bacchae and togas are naked. And I got to Harvard and we weren't doing that at all. We yeah. were like sitting down and translating 700 lines of, you know, Thucydides. I was like, oh. Okay. And so you're done, but you can't do that anymore. No, I cannot. You have to stay in practice to be able to do that stuff. I wasn't so good at it by the time I graduated. I was so sick of it that I wasn't, I kind of figured out a way to not have to take those classes and 
I switched so I could study classical Greek and English literature and marrying them through um, reading a lot of plays. Wow. So, so like, here's when I think back on my schooling, like I was an incredible student from sixth grade until a junior in high school. And then I hit the wall and I was, I was horrible after that. Really? Yeah. Like I had, I was, I was a shining star until my junior year. And then suddenly I was like, yeah, I'm done. I don't know what happened to me. I just lost all of my motivation. But I feel like I was a little bit like that in college too. I was sort of done too. I mean, I was young. I started college at 17 and, Did uh, you skip a grade? No, I just have a weird January birthday. And, okay. You know, schools like St. Anthony's, is she ready to go to school? Just put her in school. <laughs> <laughs> she can take care of herself. She's toilet trained. Yeah. She can be in fifth grade. Send her to the bar. <laughs> exactly. Have her get me a bass ale. <laughs> Exactly. Um, and I wasn't a great college student. I'm ashamed to say, I mean, I was interested in the things I was interested in, but I was sort of rushing. I wanted to move on to the next thing. Um, do you have a psychedelic experience in college? I mean, or that was high That was junior high for New York. I feel like New York, everyone does everything early. Yeah. We, you know, I mean, I had a, I once called an ambulance because I had a panic attack when I was really stoned. <laughs> <laughs> Did they show up? Yeah. Two showed up. <laughs> you got to send two. They sent one two for... ambulances <laughs> to my apartment. I lived off campus. It was mortifying. Yeah, that can happen, though, where you're like, I think my heart... Is it, was it that kind of thing? I oh, think... totally. I'm... I mean, the only moment I was laughing was my roommate was on the phone with 911. He's like, um, you know, my roommate and I smoked some pot and we think it's laced. Uh, and then obviously they were like, have you smoked, have you done this before? He's like, oh yes, we've done this before. <laughs> Constantly. You want, I, you want to hear something crazy? Yeah. Halloween in, uh, this area, the, uh, somebody was handing out, you know, those old timey, like strawberry candies that your grandparents would give you with like, the candies that look yeah. like strawberries with the, the wrapping. the green top and the yeah, red bottom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somebody's handing those out. LSD. What? Uh, this one is of, a nice neighborhood. One of my daughters, uh, yeah. One of my daughter's preschool teachers, husband's took one or ate one of them and was tripping had to go to the hospital how did he know what it was i mean like i mean i think like at the hospital they must have figured it out or he was like completely you know i mean he maybe he has some experience with it before and knew what it was once it started to take effect but who the fuck is handing out lsd candy that is my ultimate nightmare in the in, of all the things i would like to experience less in the world least in the world it would be secretly being dosed with lsd i live in a constant fear of this cuz i you know i'd go to raves i lived in amsterdam you just never know yeah. i remember my roommate came back from a rave once and he would and he you know he had been a real raver and he grew up in sacramento and he had taken where, where all the real ravers come from. They do. Really? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, that's the thing. Like, what else are you going to do? Exactly. And he was like, he looked at me. He's like, I got dosed with acid. You need to help me. Oh. But he knew what had happened. And I just, I, I, it's my ultimate nightmare. Cause it's that's, a shitty thing to do to it's somebody. It's a shitty thing to do. And that's a long commitment. That's like a 15-hour experience nightmare. to impose on somebody. You're walking around like Harvard Square, like tripping Ugh, no yeah <laughs> um running but, into professors that you know and yeah you know it's crazy that um i don't like psychedelic drugs so that's like my big nightmare would be to have that happen it can go sideways pretty easily yeah it doesn't gel with my particular you know need i don't mind other stuff but that length of time is brutal no you got to do uh, dmt it's like 15 minutes it's totally <laughs> There's like aliens talking to you, but then it's over. It's over. It's quick. It's sort of like crack. <laughs> we'll stick to those two. We figured it out. Squash, crack, and DMT. Next year at Halloween, come to my house. <laughs> so, um, but that's an urban legend, and it really happened that someone handed that. 100% LSD strawberry candies. And, you know, we always do 
because I think my wife, my wife, maybe more so than I am, is paranoid and was like, you know, we're going to do the switch, which, which I didn't, was not a thing when I was a kid. What's that? That's where like your kids give you the candy that they get on Halloween. And then the switch, which gives them a gift in exchange for all the candy. So it's like my daughter will get like a doll, but she trades in the candy to the switch, which, which is like, hmm. I don't know. I'm like, what is this? So you go out and collect all this candy for no reason. I mean, I just can't imagine that like people are going to be injecting those bags of M&Ms with stuff. That seems pretty safe to me. One would hope. It yeah. just seems like, why, why would you waste drugs on the, like, it's just, and it's such a mean thing to do their kids. Yeah. That's the, the wasting drugs question is pretty valid. You know, why would you do that? Yeah. You got to be a big loser or something. Yeah. It's a little sadistic. Yeah. It's, it's sociopathic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I was just, I was prepared to like take a, maybe a softer stance, but it really is a vicious it's, thing to do. To a kid. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So you mentioned raving. I always like to talk to people about like their, their misspent youth. Okay. I mean, I haven't even scratched my misspent youth, though. Now I'm not going to have my parents tune in. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. They, they let you go to the bar when you were 16. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody has, I think you sort of have to have, uh, or, or I have a certain mistrust for people who never really tested boundaries. I totally, I could not agree with you more. Like you have to have that period of time, right? And as a parent, as much as it terrifies me to think, of my kids go, like doing half the stupid shit that I did. Cause there were many instances where like, I was really mm -hmm. behaving like an idiot. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, from the other side of the, the uh, coin, it's, it, it's a little scary, but at the same time, sort of do want my kids to have that freedom in those years where you kind of like figure out who you are. And well, I think another sidebar to that is something I witnessed in Amsterdam a lot, especially being around professional athletes who, you know, spent their childhoods being very focused and training. And then, you know, in their twenties decided to start taking drugs uh -huh. and, or in their mid twenties. And just, I know this is going to sound insane, but you are older, you have more means, you have more access to stuff and you don't really understand your limitations. So I witnessed over and over again, people who just started taking ecstasy and they're like mid twenties who are like, oh, we can do this every night of the week. It's like, no, that's that's a that's a special treat. Yes. Like, you can't do that every night of the week. You've no idea what you're doing, or like just buying like twenty pre-rolled joints and smoking them like cigarettes. And I feel not that you need to like start doing stuff like that when you're younger, but I don't know. I, I feel being creating less of a taboo around stuff for kids is really important and like healthy experimentation yeah. like learning like because it's kind of a learning curve too that's that's the best phrase like you it's like learning to drive too late you just don't have that wealth of experience to draw on you know and you know if you're not a, also it's about being around people like i would witness people doing stuff when i was younger i mean one of the reasons i'm shit scared of psychedelic drugs is i was in a room with a bunch of people freaking out on acid when i was in high school and that really bummed me out and i was like i don't want to do that yeah. you know? so at least put your kids in a room with a bunch of people <laughs> on drugs. It's, on, it's on my list it's on my we're gonna have them in the garage <laughs> my daughter's eighth birthday party <laughs> Uh, it's like those scared straight things where you take people to like... Well, no, but because it's like, you know, I think to myself that the one that, that scares me the most is alcohol. Yeah. Because you just like, it, it, like they talk about gateway drugs. I feel like alcohol is the gateway to so much bad stuff because it's just your, your judgment is so poor. And yeah. Things get sloppy and like you wind up doing things you normally wouldn't do. Uh, I'm less concerned. Like, I mean, even if you're, even if you're on psychedelic drugs, you're basically just in the fetal position, rocking back and forth, like saying, when will this end? <laughs> <laughs> or you like jump out a window and uh, make it end quick. Oh well, yeah. But, yeah. It's like, um, 
alcohol too, if you make it too special, you create this desire to, you know, you can't drink, you can't drink. And then all that kid's going to want to do is drink. Whereas if you say, well, you know, I know you're drinking, you know, take a cab home. Right. Yeah. See, that's like, I'm, uh, that's why I kind of like, I perked up when you started talking about your youth. Yeah. Um, because I'm, I was actually just thinking about this like the other day, like at what age would I like serve a glass of wine to my kids? You know, I thought about that the other day too. Maybe like 15, 16, like on a holiday. Yeah. Just like without even like talking about it. She's like, oh, you want a little, he'll give you a little, you know, Merry Christmas, whatever. Yeah, I think that's 15. I mean, in Europe, they can drink wine legally at 15, 16. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah I like the European sensibility. Totally. Those kids don't feel, and like this, this is where you start to, um, it's very easy to sound annoying talking about this sort of thing, but like, uh, I, I do in a lot of ways envy uh, like European cultural models and social models. Like when you were living over there, did you absorb a lot of that? Did you find yourself? Um, cause it's also like, I've had small tastes of it. I've never lived there for extended periods of time. So did you go over there and like have that sort of like typical American abroad experience where you're like, this is so cool. And like, I'm going to dress differently or act different. You know what I'm saying? Well, I've always dressed really strangely. Not anymore back then. So, uh, you know, I dressed really strangely when I was over there. There was. What does a, that mean? The Dutch have a bad fashion sense, and it's very easy to get sucked into it. You know, they really, it's like they're all waiting for the flood. Your pants are always kind of short, and they have a, they have a um, preference for loud, ugly shoes, like, like teal cowboy boots and stuff, but it's. Did you get into it? I unfortunately did for a brief period of time. It was really horrifying. Um, But what I'm driving at is that like, did you having like really immersed yourself over there did like some of the um, idealism, the way that you might idealize, you know, cultures that are different from your own. Did you start to see like the flip side and now it's just like everywhere else and people are flawed or, you know, Dutch cultures, it's it's hard to, answer this question directly because Dutch culture is very, very specific and unique to other places I've been to. And there are a lot of aspects of it that are very difficult um, to appreciate or to enjoy. Um, they're, uh, they're rule bound for a country that's famous for like weed and like, you know, permissiveness and hookers. They're incredibly rule bounds. Like there's a sp- certain way to behave. You know, if you don't have, if you don't hold your fork and knife when you eat, they say you're eating like a farmer. If you you should never say I'm full after What do you mean if meal. you don't hold your fork and knife when you, you eat? You can't eat with just one utensil in your hand. Only a farmer would eat like that. So You've got to have both at the same time? Yeah, you always have to eat. You can't just like stuff your fork into your dinner plate. You have to hold the knife and... Um, they're really. I'm now thinking back to my time in Amsterdam. I'm like, I must have been. They must have been judging me. Well, they do. They're very judgy. <laughs> <laughs> but I um. I'm not sure I idealized it, but it definitely became ingrained in me. This sort of um, the way the way the lifestyle over there. Um, there are aspects of it that you think like like because I always feel like well, let's steal the good stuff from yes. everywhere. So what aspects are good and what, you know what I'm saying? Like, are there things that you wish we could integrate into American culture, like good ideas that we should be borrowing? You know, one of the things that I was always shocked by when I lived in Amsterdam, maybe it's because I went to private school in New York and I went to Harvard, um, though I do seem to know people across a broad spectrum of, you know, races, socioeconomic classes, was at least among my friends in Amsterdam, there people, we're all... You know, somebody worked at the International War Crimes Tribunal, the International Criminal Court, and somebody else is a window washer. And there was a sort of sense that it wasn't important to be successful. You know, you didn't have to be like 
everyone thought that I was this crazy driven person because I wanted to write a book. Like, well, you could sell it for like, you know, would you be happy with like $5,000 so you could take a trip around the world? I was like, no, not exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Bigger plans. (laughs) I'm an American. Exactly. I felt very American. But I did like, you know, you'd have a dinner party and people were either, you would have successful magazine editors who are just eating you go to their office for lunch and it's like make your own tuna sandwich like there's no flashiness and i think that's a really great aspect of the culture or you have a you have you hang out with somebody who's like a, a janitor but he was married to a psychiatrist so that was a really nifty okay. so is aspect. that is that a cultural is that a function of culture or is that a function of like policy like do they have tax policy that makes the playing field more level you know, like I, I, that's a that's a question I have, like, because maybe the person who is the magazine editor who is buddies with the janitor might the, the disparity, like the gap between them might not be as big as it would be here. I think that's probably part of it. But I also think part of it is it's a culture that at least among I can't speak to all of it. And I know it is changing and there is definitely a more affluent, you know, aspect of society that I wasn't familiar with. But I think it's really not great to be showy. And yeah. like, you know, these magazine, I worked for a magazine called Fantastic Man as a transcriber and sort of... What's Fantastic Man? Um, it's a magazine that's sort of based, well, it's a men's fashion magazine, sort of like Kinfolk or um, they st- the people who started it um, had started a magazine called Butt, which was a gay magazine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> go figure. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. And uh, it, it, but was interview, so it was like interview, but um, kind of like zini, but it was groovy. And then they started Fantastic Man, and it took off immediately. Like they're sitting front row at Christian Dior, and like they, you know, within a year. But they're not, you know, in the in New York magazine culture, those people are super like showy and like taking cars everywhere. And Hertz uh, and Yop are just like, you know, two dudes in the basement, you know, basement office, you know eating salads they brought salad not salad like spreads tuna spread or whatever they brought in from the supermarket for lunch and you know riding their bikes and it's Is everyone kind of, eating tuna fish over there I, I feel like every office lunch i went to was like make your own cheese or tuna fish sandwich uh, I, tuna fish is i have a real problem with it it's, it's like really, that that and may, mayonnaise but tuna fish oh like, you would i've never eaten never well. eaten in my life you would never do well in Holland. They've they call them salads, but they're like um, egg salad is like egg mayonnaise, it's like oh, super God. creamy or yeah. The worst is the um, the crab one that's like primarily mayonnaise with these like pink strings of crab in oh. there. It's like really, I think there's like candy in there too. It's super sweet. Oh God. <laughs> It's too much. It's too much, yeah. It's not It's not the best aspect of their culture is food. I mean, there's some stuff that's good, but that stuff, oof. Okay, so uh, let's get to you in writing. Like, is this oh. something... Oh, okay. Well, we might as well <laughs> squeeze it in. Uh, when you... I mean, you, you're growing up around publishing and around books, and I mean, at, with proximity to um, the world capital of media, print mm-hmm. journalism and publishing and everything. So um, it was sort of in the air there. Did you have ambitions to do this from a young age? Is this always sort of on, like in your sights or was it like, I'm going to play squash and like figure it out later? You know, I, I probably knew I always wanted to be a writer, but it was really hard to admit that. Sure. I wasn't, I wrote plays in high school and poetry and in college I didn't do any creative writing. I did a play, a playwriting class. Um, but I really distanced myself from like, there are, 
people at Harvard who were in the literary society called the Signet. And when people find out I wasn't in the Signet, in fact, I don't even know where it was. You know, even my husband's like, I can't believe you didn't join the Signet. I was like, I really kept a huge distance from that because A, I felt that I didn't belong because I wasn't really writing. But also I, I, maybe I got it from my parents. Like they were not, you know, they didn't seek out a literary society and they didn't want to specialize in that. And I never wanted to admit that I wanted to be a writer because I wasn't in these groups. Um, and I really wanted to be a magazine editor. I just thought it was so cool. And so I edited um, the Harvard Crimson has a weekly magazine called 15 Minutes. And I edited that and I loved it. All I wanted to do was start my own magazine. And so when I moved to Amsterdam, I quit playing squash after a couple of years and somehow at 23 talked my way into this job of editing um, a fashion and art magazine called Baby. One of those weird Dutch translation. It doesn't translate into English. They thought it was like your creative project is your baby. So the magazine was called Baby Magazine. <laughs> yeah, that was I think hard. I might rename my podcast. <laughs> exactly. This is your baby. Yeah. Baby MGZN. That was the name of it. Okay. Um, and that's all I wanted to do is um, edit magazines. Um, and then it just became clear from witnessing the experience of my friends who went into that field and seeing how my mother, who's pretty successful, kept losing jobs because things were closing. That was not something I was going to do. Yeah. Matt, print magazines. It's been a rough, it's been a rough experience for all of my adult life. Yeah. I have, I have a good buddy who, um, you know, went down that road and was successful, mm -hmm. but you know, magazines kept shuttering. I, I know so many people from my immediate family to really, really good friends who, who, you know, were editors of the like, time out and now are like trying to work for Uber. Uber, no. <laughs> <laughs> like time content solutions, which is really great. You know, time content solutions does like the California visitors guide and like Ford motor trucks, you know, in-house magazine. And that's, these are all good jobs, but that's like where the real like brain power is going. And yeah, that's where the, that's where the readership is. You know what the third most, um, the third highest circulation of any print magazine is in the United States of America. Brides. Costco connection. What? It's got like 9 million subscribers. Do they need freelancers? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> anyone out there is looking for work. Can... What? I mean, is it just a circular or is it? Yeah, I think it's like, you know, it's like they're in-house. Like, you know, you people who are members of Costco get the magazine and then they have advertisers who want to sell their, you know, it's just, it's like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a, it's like all part of their ecosystem. So it doesn't really apply to anything outside of Costco, but you get deals, I'm sure. And Do book publicists know this? We should all be advertising in Costco. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I read that. I was like looking up because I got curious about like what magazines are actually circulating. And, and that one, it's like AARP, I want to say is number one. Oh yeah. Because they have that magazine that, you know, I think you just automatically get when you turn 50. So I have that to look forward to. Hey, soon. <laughs> but you could also get a job. I could also get a job. <laughs> Start podcasting for AARP. Um, you know, that's not a bad idea. It isn't. Uh, so let me ask you something about um, making the transition from uh, being a magazine editor to deciding that you wanted to pursue a literary course. Because like you talk about kind of seeing what was happening in the media world, uh, like vis-a-vis -vis your friends, like, you know, magazines are shuttering, people are losing their jobs, watching your mom go through it. And then saying, you know, but as an alternative, I'll write novels. <laughs> okay. I'm going to, I'm finally going to answer this question honestly. I mean, I have answered it honestly in the past, but like the truth of the matter was I loved playing squash, but my parents were not thrilled with it, you know, and they, they weren't, my dad was more into it than my mom, but you know, they made it pretty clear and I agreed with them that this wasn't something I was going to do for my rest of my life. And I wasn't going to be 
a squash pro, like working at a club, giving lessons as I've done it and it helped me write my second novel. You know, I did it and put myself through grad school doing it. Where'd you go to grad school? I went to Bennington. Okay. To get your MFA? Yeah. Okay. Recent, more recent in 2011. So not that long ago. So is that, is that like the low res yeah. program? Yes. Did you like it? I loved it. You know, I was finally ready to study. Like I just loved it. I loved everything about it. All right. And had, did you have a book under your belt? When, when I you... sold my first novel when I went there, but okay. I became a way better writer. You did. So yeah. Do you like with the benefit of hindsight, you're like, I wish I would have done this before. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. Um, but you know, I started to write that novel, the one that I wish I had gone to graduate school. My parents kept saying, do you want to go to get an MFA? Do you want to go to film school? Do you want to go to like the Trinity rep program at Brown to study playwriting? And I was so, this is where I was like pushing back. I was like, no, I'm like living in Europe. This is awesome. I can do it on my own. And like, well, you know, it's a lot harder than you think. And I said, well, and I started to write the novel, the art of disappearing, which is the weird novel that, um, came out first when I was playing squash to sort of help me come to terms with the fact that my brain wasn't as excited about training all day as it should be, you know? And I felt like I was starting to appease my parents saying, well, I am writing this book because I'd quit the magazine and gone back to playing squash and I'm writing this book and you see, I am doing something important. I'm doing something, you know, intellectual. And it made me, you know, it made, it helped me rationalize this commitment to the sport that was really going to go nowhere ultimately. Um, and that's why I started to write. Okay. Yeah. And did you, when you had that book done, did you know, you must've known people who worked in publishing, like growing up in Brooklyn and having parents in the business that it help you like navigate that part of the experience? Um, well, I mean, it, it helped in the sense that my, <laughs> my dad was able to point out the book wasn't doing well. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I've seen the, uh, what is it? Book scan or whatever. Yeah, I, uh, um, you know, my parents did not help me get my book published. My mom, because I was living in Amsterdam or the Hague at the time, what my mom did is she dropped it. She was able to drop it off at various agents. Um, I had a friend recommend agents. So a friend of my mother's who is in publishing recommended eight agents and six of them accepted the book, which was amazing. Um, but from then on in, I was on my own and it got rejected 39 times or something like that, you know? And finally St. Martin's bought it. Um, you know, after I'd revised it. So the thing, it's always tricky because my parents do know a lot of people in publishing and like my book will get books even recently get reviewed by people who worked with my mother or for my mother. So it's, it's you a know, small world. It's a small world, but it doesn't really give you a leg up, you know? Yeah. Well, the book, the thing is, is that the book has to stand on its own merits. Like, right. Like even if they, like it might get it reviewed, like it might help to get it one review or something like that, but like, it doesn't mean the review is going to necessarily be good. No, it doesn't. <laughs> or that the book is going to sell. Right. Um, and, and who knows why books sell? Like, I don't, th I don't believe anything about a review can do it. I don't believe a, like a single, I guess Oprah could maybe move the needle for a few, you know, a couple weeks, but like ultimately it's word of mouth. It's word of mouth. And you know, it's such a, it, it's such a name recognition thing. You know, once you're in there. And you're a brand. And you're a brand. Um, you sell books because I think people buy. It's like they buy Coca-Cola. They exactly. don't buy like the weird, like the new, new whatever. Yeah. They, yeah. Know, they want what they know. So it's like, oh, I, I know that this, you know, whatever novel, Stephen King novel is going to scare me. Or I know right. that, you know. I mean, because I go to a lot of mystery conventions now, um, you see that 
why literary fiction doesn't often make a dent in like the culture in the bestseller list because there are these writers and there there many of them are terrific who write at a tremendous pace and produce a lot of books and people want the next you know they want they want the next Kate White the next Alison Galen the next Laura Littman and these are all terrific writers and they're all female writers which is one of the coolest things about crime fiction right now right but it, you can't compete like and that's name recognition mm-hmm so you, how did you get in? How did you get to California? My husband is a TV writer. Oh yes. Well, he wasn't. He was an independent filmmaker, and that is even. I'm. That's worse than magazines. I yeah. Think. Yeah. So um, he came out here to um, write for more studio stuff. Which, which show? I mean, does he write for a TV show? He writes on a show called Friends from College on Netflix. Okay. I'm trying to. I mean, I'm the worst person to ask about that kind of stuff, but it's about people who Our are friends for, from college who all went to Harvard. <laughs> who all went to Harvard. Well, he's got, he can do uh what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, he's got you at home for like, you well, know. he went to Harvard too. Oh, <laughs> and all of you who created the show went to Harvard. So they don't need me. I, they can't ask me any questions. I lived off campus and didn't really, I was drinking the bass ale. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but the, like, this is the thing about TV and film. Like it really, there's a huge like pipeline from the Ivies to entertainment and like i never yeah. realized like i've lived here for almost 20 years like only like in the last like seven years that i realized that that was how a lot of it works oh the harvard lampoon which is like the um i'm gonna really show that i know very little about the college i went to it's the humor magazine yeah i'm married to someone who's on the lampoon um they just i didn't quite understand that that was a pipeline to a major career in tv writing yeah yeah because maybe i would have joined or something because i i this is the, I mean, hell, I would have tried to get into Harvard. I would have studied. I wouldn't, I would have fought my way through my malaise in like my junior year of high school and like, you know, done better and get, you know, filled out my college applications in something other than ink. I, I hand wrote them. Like I did like the night before. Um, did I type my, I don't know. I, I remember like cutting things out with scissors and like taping. I think I hand wrote a lot of it. And then the essays I typed on a typewriter or a word processor and I had to cut it out and tape it onto the application form because you had to put it in this little box yeah i mean it just it was a really half i just remember like not wanting to do it and like kind of being forced where'd to even you go apply. to college uh boulder that's a party school i've heard yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, what else are you gonna do there i don't know <laughs> i can get an education no i mean it's good for like i mean i want to say like aerospace engineering and like there's is that a, what you did <laughs> yes i was gonna be an astronaut <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I was a film major, you know, but like I went to Boulder, like didn't even realize like, like Boulder's film department is like Stan Brackage Mm -hmm. who was like, you know, painting on celluloid and like, you know, taking, like doing like the first, he did like the first birth film and, you know, very avant-garde. And I went there thinking like, well, we'll make a comedy and, you know, it's where the money is. (laughs) What? In birth films? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hand painting on celluloid. It's huge. (laughs) Um, but you know, it's all about experimental film and I think things have changed a bit, you know, since I was there, but it was very, very much like out there. That's what the father character in Fortress of Solitude does. Is make... He makes those kind of movies, I think. Oh, he does. I think I'm, I might, might be misremembering it, but I think that's what he does. It was like Stan Brackage, Maya Darren, and like actually these films, I, I, you develop, especially with the benefit of hindsight, like great, um, respect for those artists. Cause like they really were in it for the love of the game and they really are cool. Like if you've ever seen Stan Brackage's hand-painted films... It's like it's like a like a breathing painting. Oh, wow. they're, they're gorgeous. So you learn something in college. A little bit, but I mean, <laughs> like after the fact, it was like, oh wow, I was around like an American master. Had no idea. He just was like he was a he had like a I want to say he chewed tobacco. I would just like see him like spitting into a cup and be like, there he is. But he's, he's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him spit. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna get mouth cancer. Um, 
So, okay. So you come out to California to uh, kind of do like the Hollywood, where your husband's doing the Hollywood thing. How long ago was that? Eight years. So long enough to sort of process this place. Yeah. And that's what's the new book. Yes. So like this, it's a California novel. It's definitely a California novel. How long did it take you to feel like you, I mean, not that you have to, uh, no one grants you permission, but like you do have to feel like I have enough of a mastery of a place or a sense of a place to write it. Absolutely. Like when did it occur to you? Like, I want to try to, to render this. Um, well, I was finishing up my second novel when I moved out here. So, um, I finished that in, that came out in 2013 and so I'd been out here for four years and I guess that's when I started to write Wonder Valley. What do you think of, uh, Los Angeles, like a Brooklyn girl, Harvard, like, you know, it's very, like you're very much of the East coast and now you're here. Like, what do you make of this place? You know, I, I really like a lot of it, a lot of aspects of it. I feel that there's so much to discover on a daily basis. I know that sounds super cliche, but the city is big and there's weird stuff. Like I, I continually surprised, like I was driving up the street here. I'm like, this is this kind of area with the palm trees and the bungalows was how I envisioned all of Los Angeles, yeah. you know? And I, I still, still, still sort of takes my breath away. I'm like, it's so classic Los Angeles. Look at this. Look at these palm trees and these cacti. Um, I find that like, just, I feel like I'm discovering something all the time. I live in a neighborhood that's, um, a little, um, rough around the edges. Um, you know, it's, they, it was, kind of ruined when they put the 10 freeway in there but there's it's just i love to look at all the like mismatched houses and it's it's just a big jumble it's and a it's, big jumble and it's so huge and like what i've been uh learning is that uh with these like gps like ways and google maps and stuff when i drive i kind of like to use them because they take me uh, on routes that i don't oh, normally yeah. take like because you can get you know you sort of like i've lived here almost 20 years and you sort of learn your little patterns of getting around town but when you're trying to dodge traffic, suddenly you're cutting down side streets and taking new paths. And you're like, holy shit, I had no idea this was here. And yeah. I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of this place, even after two decades almost. I could not agree more. I mean, that's why I like Los Angeles. I feel like there's the Los Angeles that I don't really have much to do with, which is Beverly Hills, the film stuff. I rarely go to the beach. I don't spend time in the Pacific Palisades or Malibu. But there's this whole aspect of the city that I feel that I've gotten to know, which is the east, not the east side, like um, Silver Lake Echo Park, where I did live, but sort of farther east past the arts districts. And I live in West Adams, which is, you know, um, somewhat south. And just going, f the more south I go, the more excited I feel about LA. I just started, you know, because I, I live more in the center of the city when I take a cab to the airport, because of exactly what you're saying, Waze and Google Maps, it takes this wild route through this area of Westchester and, and you know, Inglewood, where... I, I have preconceptions that are completely wrong and it's really nice over there. Yeah. And it's like, you know, great little houses and quiet streets. And I'm just like, I'm like, keep going. This is so great. This, you know, you're going to take that route again. I'm canceling my trip. Just drive around. <laughs> just drive around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, it's a really, it's a, it's just a lot to explore. And, uh, I kind of like too this idea of Los Angeles as being the city at the bottom of the hill into which everything slides. Like this is as far as you can get. So people who, didn't necessarily fit in wherever they were like the natural migratory pattern would be like to head West. And it, this feels like sort of like w the last outpost for weirdos, like historically at least. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so well, like, you just kind of feel like that, that in the fabric people, there are some people I know who are, you know, generational Los Angelinos, but most people are from someplace else. They came out here to 
try some crazy thing. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot wrong with it. There's a lot wrong with any place, but I have affection for that general spirit. I love it. I mean, I think that I like the idea. I maybe because I grew up in Brooklyn and I know it really, really well. And um, I get annoyed by other people discovering Brooklyn and getting it wrong. But I feel that there's a finite amount, although Brooklyn's gigantic, you know, and not everyone goes everywhere. But I feel that it's developed in the sense that the only thing that's going to change is more fancy lofts are going to go in. But I feel there's so many parts of L.A. that are almost unexplored, you know, that that can be um, you can feel like you are somewhere that not a lot of people have gone before. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Like who, cause I mean, who, even people who've lived here their entire lives, like I, I'm trying to think of who the people would be, who would know it the best. It's like the cab drivers, you know, like the but, pizza, the pizza delivery, like, you know, but, but even then it's that's so a, big, they're not going from, to, from Limert park or Lemert park to, you know, Malibu. That's, you know, yeah. you know, you're, that's the thing that I think when I first moved out here, I was, are you sticking your neighborhood? If you're in Silver Lake, you got Silver Lake. If you're, you know, Hollywood, you got in Hollywood. But I think with Uber and everything too, people are spreading out more. You know what I do? I ride a bike. Oh yeah. All everywhere. Like I, the other night I left work and I ride a bike to work and I had to go to a buddy's reading up in um, Los Feliz at Skylight Books. And I was like, do I go home and then get in the car? And I was like, no, fuck it. I'm just going to ride my bike all the way across town. Do you feel safe? Somehow. Yes. Knock on wood. I don't wear a helmet and uh, everyone's telling me, but I'm like, you know what? When I was a kid, I never wore a helmet. I never wore a helmet. I was going off ramps. I was, you know, like people are fucking paranoid and, 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 I feel like if you are really paying attention, um, it's pretty, it's fairly easy to keep yourself out of danger. When I lived downtown or in the arts district, and would ride to downtown just with all the buses and the narrow streets. It was really difficult. Yeah. You got to pick your routes. I yeah. mean, I don't have, I don't have a route where I'm like, you know, like on fountain or something. And there's like, you know, six inches between me and the car. Like I, right. I, don't, I don't, I don't do that. But, okay. um, I like to ride a bike because you start to take little weird side streets and you start to see things you don't normally see. And, there's something more immediate about your experience. Even if you're moving down uh, a street that you, you've driven down a hundred times, like when you're on a bike, you're seeing it in a different way. I miss riding a bike. You know, in Amsterdam, I rode bikes a lot. In Brooklyn, I rode my bike a lot. I have a bike out here. I haven't, possibly because I have a three-year-old, I haven't really, you know, yeah. ridden my bike a lot. But... It changes it. Well, yeah. Maybe one day. <laughs> well, she's got a, I got a bike seat for it and everything. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, what about the entertainment business? Like you have proximity to that through marriage and like, you just have proximity to it period because you live here. Like, what's your take on that? Do you, does that culture give you the creeps? Do you like it? You know, I, I don't really understand it. I mean, I'm starting to come into a greater understanding of it and like the struggle of like, why can't everyone just get a TV show made? You know, like, I just like, (laughs) I'm just continually fascinated by all of the input from all of these people on every project. I mean, it would make me crazy. Like. As a novelist or a journalist, I write some editors like rewrite this, you know, and then maybe the head publishers like that needs to be fixed. But that's like three people, you know. I, I'm baffled by the, the 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 soup of voices and input and problems just to make you know a TV pilot. This fell through for like the reasons projects fail. It's just upsetting and you know frustrating. arbitrary and like the, and like the thing too is that like in journalism or in literature uh, in literature i feel like the input that you're getting from editors is informed most of the time like somebody's really invested themselves in it the input that you can get in entertainment just feels arbitrary some and it feels like people are like giving notes because 
they feel like it's their job? Well, it's directly related to the material in a novel or journalism. Like you wrote this, this, this character's weak, or, you know, I feel like we're spending too much time off the main topic of your article and the sidebars or whatever. But I mean, from my husband's experience and from listening to him on his conference calls and hearing what's going wrong, it's like the issues aren't necessarily to do with the material. It's something, uh, some tangential issue with the studio that's either because there's this conflict with an actor or the someone, you know, and then, or, or the studio boss will change and that person has a taste, different mm. taste. And oh, the whole slate of projects that was about to go into development, just fell through. They suddenly all suck for some reason. Like that happened how, to me. That happened really? To me. Yeah. I saw like my, um, writing partner and I sold the show to MTV and then the executives, like it was, it was like on the one inch line and then the executives changed. Right. And it was like, what? And, we, 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 you know, we were going to do this. And, and it makes no sense. It's not like your project's bad. It's just, yeah. also, I don't like the th- the idea that with like pitching and selling shows that if someone buys it, a network buys it and they don't make it, then that project is dead. Yeah. Why does that invalidate something? It's kryptonite. Like no one will touch you. Cause it, like, it's been around, it's dead. It's like, we need something new. And there's yeah. always this, that frustrated me too. It's like, there's always like, well, what else do you got? Yeah. It's like, well, Hey, I just spent like five months perfecting this thing, you know, like, yeah, uh, you know, we can at least take some time and try to like work on it. This is what I have. This is, this is it. I don't have 800 things. (laughs) Or you could go to a general meeting where they sort of look at you and say, it's very nice to meet you. And if you ever have anything you want to share with us, our door is open. Like I've been on a few of those. Those are so bull. They're bullshit. I know. I'm like, because okay. the thing is, is you that could call me. <laughs> I've done I've done over a hundred of them, and they seem really friendly. You're like, wow, I really like that person. Like they went, and like you never hear from them again. Yeah, they told me to come to them with ideas, but you're like, I don't really know what exactly how to do that either. You it know? disillusions me because I don't know if they mean it. Like once you go through enough of them, where it's like people are super smiley and super friendly, and then like nothing becomes of it. You're just like, was that even real? Like, are these people full of shit? Or- I don't know why they do it because it must be a pain in the ass on that end to just like random people coming into your office like i loved your novel i loved your essay you know it would be great if you came up with we don't want to make that we don't want to make your novel we don't want to make your essay but if you ever came up with something else like (laughs) we'll make that one i'm like we're looking for like cowboy vampires you know whatever it is and you're just you walk out and you're uh, those things they can become really uh disillusioning and confusing Mm -hmm. after a while like your voice but just (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not what you've done with it. <laughs> and the other thing too, is I feel like an email, I've said this before, but I feel like in emails in the entertainment industry, people use all caps a lot and they love to tell you that they love things in all caps. And I'm just like, you don't love me. You don't love my voice. Like it's, it feels bullshit to me. It feels like they're just covering their bases and uh-huh. trying to, you know, cast such a wide net to make sure nothing slips through just in case you walked into that office and you, you know, pitched the new 40 year old virgin meets twilight, you know, and they're like, Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> Old vampire uh, virgins. Yeah. <laughs> Sad vampire. Just like socially awkward vampire. <laughs> He's trying to lose his virginity before he turns 3,000. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate you coming over here and uh, congratulate you on the book and on whatever comes next. Thanks so much. This was a real pleasure. All right, guys, there you go. That's Ivy Pakoda. Her new novel is called Wonder Valley. It's available now from Echo. Wonder Valley, go get it. You can find her online at ivypakoda.com. She's also on Twitter. Uh, her handle over there is at Ivy Pakoda. She might be on other social media. I have no idea. Maybe she is. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Ivy Pakoda, Wonder Valley. Go get your copy. Did I already say that? Okay. I'm doing the robot right now. 
I'm wearing a unitard. <laughs> That's what I think of when I hear this song. Just someone wearing a unitard doing the robot. I want to put that visual in your head. I want to sear that into your uh, brain, your cerebral cortex. Is that where you sear things? I'm very tired. It's very dark in here. Uh, the sun has gone down during the uh, course of my podcasting today, and uh, it's now dark, and I never turn the lights on because previously there was sunlight. You see how that works? I'm now sitting in complete blackness, my face illuminated by the glow of my laptop screen, listening to this song. I think it would mess with just about anybody. So you can understand where I'm at psychologically. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. You can uh, check out songs and other uh, sundry items at killrockstars.com. If you would like to write to me, let me know what you think. You can do so by emailing me at letters at otherppl.com if you would like to support the program. If you really find this program enriching and you want to give a little something back, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Right? Okay. Songs doing it so this is the best part right here i feel like i always talk about this song when i use this song as the closing song it sort of begs for commentary uh what else anything else any other logistics you can follow the show on twitter at other ppl it's always a good idea you can tweet at me you can tweet questions at me try my best to answer them. I'm way behind on email. I got to apologize to people who've been emailing me. I can't keep up. It's got too much going on. It just stresses me out. I need to get rid of email. It's a bad idea. It's a bad technology. I'm opposed to email. I'm going to put an end to it. What am I doing with my life? 